On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. It's a, it's a great honor and it's a great joy to be here with you today. Thank you, Pastor John and uh, the entire Lindale family and, uh, and tell Debbie thank you as well. So we love you. We appreciate you. I'm very honored and grateful to be here. And if it's okay, I'll just start in prayer. Father God, um, I really want to make this time about you and these people. And Lord, I want to I want to serve them as best I am. So please send the Holy Spirit uh, to fill me to serve them. Lord Jesus, these are people that you love. These are people that you came for. These are people that you lived for. These are people that you've died for. These are people that you are hearing their prayers. You are seeing their days. You are feeling their tears. And you are coming again to take them to the home that you built for them. And so, Lord Jesus, please allow me to serve your people with the affection that you have for them. And we pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. And we pray that this would be a breakthrough moment for them by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, today, we, we, we gather with God's people around the world. And a few thousand years ago, as you know, the Lord Jesus walked the earth. And some of you are Christians and some of you are not. And the story of Christianity is that this man, Jesus Christ, declared himself to be the God-man, and he walked on the earth, and he performed miracles, and he raised the dead, and he did the incredible, and he died, and he rose from death. And the reason we're meeting on a Sunday is because he rose on a Sunday, and he ascended back into heaven, and what began as a small handful of a few followers of Jesus calling themselves Christians, which originally was a derogatory term. And we took it as a badge of honor. Yes, we are like a little bit of Jesus on the earth. Has exploded today to be a few billion people and Christianity is the most popular religion in the history of the world. You're part of the most amazing movement. Something that's only possible by the power of God in the history of the world. And that being said, as we, as we stand back and step back, Apart from Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who is in a category unto himself, apart from him, who would you say, little trivia time, is the most influential, significant, irreplaceable person in the history of Christianity? 2,000 years, billions of people. You can only pick one. Who would you choose? Think about it for a moment. Who would you choose? apart from Jesus, as the most influential person in the history of Christianity. Any? It was consistent. You've taught them well. Pastor John, good job. <laughs> How many of you, if we were voting, raise your hand, you'd say Paul, the Apostle Paul. Okay. I, I would agree with you. And, and I want to talk about the life of Paul, and I want to pull a theme from the life of Paul. I know you've been in 2 Corinthians, your pastor and pastors are Bible teachers, they take you through books of the Bible, I praise God for that, and the author of 2 Corinthians is Paul, so I want to serve and supplement their series and spend some time looking at the life of this 
man, this tremendous man. Your New Testament, for those of you who don't know, which is the half of the Bible from the life of Jesus forward, it's 27 books, 13 of which are written by this man, Paul. There's a 14th book that is possibly written by him called Hebrews. We're not sure who the author is. Some would say it's Paul. So by sheer number of books, he is the largest contributor to the New Testament. By sheer volume, the largest contributor to the New Testament is a man named Luke. And he's the historian of the New Testament. He writes Luke telling us the story of Jesus and Acts telling us the story of the early church. What's interesting is that Paul and Luke are close friends. Luke travels with him on his missionary journeys. I believe Luke was his doctor and Paul needed one. He took a lot of beatings, was imprisoned, shipwrecked, homeless, left for dead, adrift on the open sea, and spent a lot of time doing prison ministry from the inside. And he needed a doctor, and Luke was his doctor, and Paul was his pastor. And when when Luke writes the book of Acts, where we will spend a bit of time in just a moment, from chapter 13 through chapter 18, he focuses on the life and the ministry of Paul. And so it is not an overstatement to say that much, if not most, of the New Testament comes from or is connected to the Apostle Paul. Here is what others have said of him, this man who's fluent in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Greek, and possibly Latin. For those of you who would hear this sermon and you would have intellectual academic objections to Christianity, might I submit to you that the Apostle Paul is a towering mental figure and his belief in Jesus is entirely trustworthy. The biblical scholar Paul Barnett calls him, quote, the first theologian in the early church and arguably the greatest in the history of Christianity. An early church father, John Chrysostom, put it this way, put the whole world on one side of the scale and you will see that the soul of Paul outweighs them all. And the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, one of the greatest minds in the history of the world, he called Paul, quote, the wisest man after Christ. And he's the author of 2 Corinthians, which you have been and will continue studying. And in every one of our lives, there is a shaping, marking season. We can look back in our life and say, that was a hinge moment where a door was closed to who I was and a door was open to who I became. And as we look at this significant man, I want to look at the most significant series of events and seasons of events in his life. And so if you've got a Bible or you've got a fake Bible on your phone, go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. This is where we first meet the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. You'll see that his name initially is called Saul, and he will have a name change as he's about to have a life change. First, we meet this man named Stephen. And if your mom named you Stephen, tell her thanks. She did a good job. She picked a good name. Stephen, full of grace and power, there's there's the work of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity in his life, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. The evidence of God's anointing was on the life of Stephen. He spoke with an authority and the supernatural followed him. Then some rose up and disputed with Stephen. For every action, there's a reaction. For every movement, there's an opposition. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, here come the false charges, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, now the mob is forming. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, now it's gone public. And he set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, and hear me in this, the issue is Jesus. The opposition is to Jesus. The resistance is to Jesus. And because Stephen loves and serves Jesus, he will meet stiff opposition and resistance. The same is true for all who love and serve Jesus. He will destroy this place and change the customs of the law that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Here is Stephen facing public opposition, ostracism, and criticism. And the Holy Spirit is in and on him to such a degree and in such a way that as he speaks, he's able to refute his opponents and enemies. And here's what happens. He doesn't get rattled. He doesn't get angry, he doesn't get defensive, he doesn't blame shift, he doesn't declare war, he doesn't start losing his temper or his disposition. He maintains this steady, calm, spirit-empowered, enabled, peaceable disposition. As they're attacking this guy, he just smiles and there's love in his eyes. And the face is the window to the heart. And as they press in on Stephen, his heart is revealed through the countenance of his face. I don't have time to get into it, but then he's gonna preach a sermon because if you're a ministry leader, if there's a crowd, you assume that they're there for a sermon. And I would encourage you, you can read Acts chapter seven for yourself and it's this magnificent sermon where he walks through the Old Testament showing how the Bible is not a bunch of stories about a bunch of people, it's one story about one person and it's all about Jesus. Well, in hearing about Jesus, they have a response. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 1. Now, when they heard these things, they were what? Enraged. Enraged. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. If your heart is soft and tender toward God, when you hear the word of God, you melt If your heart is hard toward God, when you hear the word of God, you become enraged, you become hardened. And they ground their teeth at him. Do any of you have a dog? We've got a German shepherd. If you come to our house and see the teeth, it's a bad day for you. Amen? (laughs) These people are starting to act in a way that is almost animalistic. The fangs come out. The temperature is rising, the resistance is increasing. But how will Stephen respond? He, full of the Holy Spirit. The way that Jesus lived his life was by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. The way that you and I can live a life patterned after Jesus is by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, Stephen is going to be filled with the Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Stephen is pure in heart and he sees God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They would not listen anymore. And they rushed together at him. Now, now the mob is approaching him and encircling him and opposing him and going to seek to destroy him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now this is Paul, and here he walks onto the stage of history. This is his introduction. This is the first time we hear of him in God's word. And as they were stoning Stephen, what would he say? What would he do? What would you say? What would you do? He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, do you see it? Here's an angry mob that is murdering him openly and publicly and shamefully. This man has taken so many stones to the head and to the body that he can no longer stand. And he's on his knees and rocks are flying. People are literally shouting their opposition, their, their accusation, and then picking up their rock to throw it at him, to punish him, to make him pay. He cries out in a loud voice, just like Jesus does from the cross. Lord, what does he say? Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the Bible's language for the death of a believer. We don't die. We go to sleep for a little while. And when Jesus comes back, we come back too. And we walk into the kingdom of God, fully restored and healed forever. If you love Jesus, you don't just die. You fall asleep for a little while. Your soul goes to be with Jesus. Your body lays in the grave. And one day upon his return, they will be rejoined and you will be rejoicing. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. The Bible uses certain language. It says that Christians are like sheep and that opponents and enemies are like wolves. Well, here we've got the sheep and here come the wolves. It's like a wolf pack, an angry mob. And every wolf pack has got an alpha. And in this pack, who's the alpha? Saul. They lay their garments at his feet. He's overseeing the execution and the murder of Stephen. It says they take off their coats just like a pitcher coming out of a bullpen or a quarterback entering into the game. They take off their coat to loosen up their arms so that when it comes time to stone, as they yell their accusation, they pick up their rock and throw it. They're doing so with maximum velocity and force. And they lay their cloaks at the feet of Saul showing that he is the alpha in the pack of wolves. Well, who shows up but the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? And Stephen says, I saw heaven open. This is the same thing that happens to Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's the same thing that happens to John in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Heaven opens up and he sees Jesus as the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite designation and title for himself. And he takes it from Daniel where God becomes a man. The eternal ruling and reigning God humbly enters into human history. And he sees Jesus. And I want you to know that 
that if you saw Jesus right now, you would not likely see him in the way that you are prone to consider him. That in eternity past, Jesus lived in glory, high and exalted, ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah says that the train of his robe filled the temple and that angels surrounded him crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was in glory and then he entered into human history and he did so humbly. That he retained his divine attributes, but he set aside the continual use of them. That rather than coming in glory, Jesus came in humility. And he appeared to us to be a poor, marginalized, rural, Galilean peasant. And if you and I would have seen Jesus, Isaiah said that he had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. He looked incredibly normal. A single guy around 30 from a poor family in a rural town who is single. And he did that to identify with us. He came in humility. And he lived the life we have not lived, the life without sin. And he died the death we should have died, the death for sin. And he rises to give the gift. We cannot earn the gift of salvation. And then Jesus, after appearing for 40 days, after his resurrection, he ascended back into heaven. And so friends, when you think of Jesus, think of him as he is. When you pray, you pray to the glorified Jesus. When you sing, you sing to the glorified Jesus. When you confess your sins, you confess your sins to the glorified Jesus. When you entrust your future, you entrust your future to the glorified Jesus. If you saw him today, you would see him as king of kings and lord of lords and high and exalted and seated on a throne and being worshipped by the angels and coming again to judge the living and the dead. And when life is against you and circumstances are set before you, it is so easy to look down in despair or to look out in fear. And Stephen looks up in faith. And he says, I've got to find Jesus on the worst, most devastating, difficult, damaging day of my life. I have to find Jesus. And he sees Jesus. And friends, what is Jesus doing? Standing. Do you know what kings do? They sit. Kings sit on thrones. You get up and you walk to a king. A king does not stand up for you. You stand before them. Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven. And he stands up for Stephen. If you're a sports fan, whatever your favorite sport is, there's a point where something amazing is in the process of happening. In football, somebody breaks free and they're headed toward the end zone. In baseball, somebody puts the bat on the ball and it's going over the fence. In every sporting event, right in the middle of an amazing, game-changing moment, what do the fans do? They leap out of their seats. It's happening. Yes, go. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus gets out of his seat. Forgive, 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 forgive. Forgive, Stephen. Forgive him. Forgive him. You're almost there. Do it. Jesus gets out of his throne in heaven and cheers for believers who forgive their enemies. The sheep are watching. The wolves are coming. The alpha is leading. 
The chief shepherd is watching. And Stephen, the shepherd, he's dying. He becomes the first martyr in the Christian church. And he's going to follow in the pattern of Jesus. Both were falsely accused. Both were opposed by false witnesses. And both were falsely executed. These were not trials, these were murders. Some of you have suffered unjustly, and I'm sorry for that. Some of the things that we suffer for are things that we are at least partly responsible for and complicit in. But Stephen is a man who is entirely an innocent victim. He's suffering not for doing wrong, but for doing right. And Jesus set a pattern and a precedent for Stephen and for all of us, and that was one of forgiveness. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was brought before false witnesses. He was falsely tried and he was falsely murdered. And they strip him and they beat him and they're in the process of crucifying him and as Jesus is lifted up with a crown of thorns in mockery of his kingship, Jesus is speaking words from the cross of blessing and love and kindness and mercy. He's a wonderful pastor to the bitter end. And they get so tired of hearing Jesus say gracious, life-giving, healing words that they take a sponge and they sop it in wine vinegar and they put it at the end of a stick and they shove it into his mouth. And for many years, as I read that, starting as a new Christian at age 19 in college, I thought, oh, that was very kind of those executioners and Roman soldiers to give him a, a moment of respite and relief. And then some years later, many years later, I, I got to visit uh, Greece and Israel and Turkey and do a little bit of biblical study on site. And I learned that part of the standard issue for a Roman soldier heading out into the battle or out into the field was a sponge to be used as toilet paper. And they would put it on a stick to cleanse themselves after they went to the bathroom out in the middle of the wilderness or wherever they happened to be. And before they did, they would sop it in wine vinegar as a bit of an antiseptic or a disinfectant. It seems entirely plausible that that's what they took and shoved in Jesus' mouth. And with that taste on his lips, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. And then Jesus would die in our place for our sins, answering his own prayer that we might be forgiven and that the enemies of God would become the children of God. And in watching this, the sheep and the shepherds learn how to be like the chief shepherd. And here Stephen is following in the example of Jesus. And forgiveness is literally to cancel a debt. Vengeance is where you make someone pay. Karma is where you die and come back and you have to pay it back. Purgatory is a false concept of where you go to pay it off. And Jesus pays in full. Friends, this is where Christianity is different than every other religion. In other religions, there is not a concept of a pure grace forgiveness of sin. This is exclusively the domain of Christianity. That only Jesus forgives. And the reason that those of us who are Christians have come to the Lord Jesus is in large part for forgiveness. 
So let me ask you a, a painful question. Who has attacked you? Who has wounded you? Who has harmed you? Who has destroyed you? Was it physical? Was it financial? Was it emotional? Was it spiritual? Was it relational? What has it done to your soul? Did it bruise you a bit? Did it cut you deep? Did, did it create a profound wound? Has it left you crippled emotionally and spiritually? Many of us, perhaps most of us, arguably all of us, are, have been, or will be in a similar position to Stephen. The question is, how will we, how will you respond? This decision you make today about that pain determines your destiny and your future. God wants you to forgive them. Jesus wants to jump off his throne and cheer. The question then is, why should I forgive them? I'll give you a few answers quickly. Number one, it glorifies God. Our God is a God who forgives. And as we forgive, we're showing the world something of what our God is like. Number two, if you're forgiven, you need to be forgiving. If God has forgiven you, he's given you a tremendous gift to share with others, not just to enjoy for yourself. And even though you're hurting and the pain is real, to say, God, I know that you can forgive me, but what they have done is so bad, I cannot forgive them, is to say, God, what I have done to you is not as bad as what they've done to me. Now, I want to release you from that bondage and that burden. If God has forgiven you, you need to forgive them. Some of you say, well, they haven't asked for forgiveness. Was, was Paul asking for forgiveness? No. Number three, the Holy Spirit flows through forgiveness. <clears throat> you will dam up and block the, the anointing of God in your life like a river that has a clog, right? Pure water in life can't flow freely where there is bitterness, vengeance, unforgiveness, unhealed hurt. And God wants his river of grace to flow from the heart of God the Father through the death of the Lord Jesus, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, through your life and soul to others. And part of that is to cleanse you, to release you, to take all of the hurt and the bitterness and the anguish and the vengeance and the devastation and to let it flow downstream and away from you so you can be free. One of the reasons that the God God of the Bible wants you to forgive is because he loves you and it's good for you. Number four, to forgive them prepares you to see Jesus. It prepares you to see Jesus. He saw Jesus and one day you and I will die we'll close our eyes in this world, we'll open our eyes in his kingdom, we will see Jesus face to face, and I don't want you to take your bitterness with you. I don't want to take you to take your hurt, your vengeance, your wrath, your anger, your clamor, your slander with you. I want you to forgive, and I want you to be ready to stand before Jesus. 
And Stephen was ready to stand before Jesus because he forgave. Number five, it transfers the burden. Stephen had so much that he could have been burdened by, and had he allowed it to burden him, he would have not had the face of an angel. His reputation is destroyed. His life is being taken. We don't know, does he have a mom? Does he have a dad? He didn't get to say goodbye. They don't know what's happening. Does he have a wife? Does he have kids? He probably had plans and a life and a future and a ministry and a hope. There was so much that could have burdened Stephen and in forgiving Paul, he transfers the burden to Jesus. Some of you are carrying burdens that are absolutely crushing for you because of things you've done and things that have been done against you. You're struggling to forgive. You're struggling to accept God's forgiveness. And in forgiving others and accepting God's forgiveness, you transfer that burden over to Jesus. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I want you today, whatever burden you brought, I want you to hand it to the Lord Jesus and I want you to forgive those that have contributed to your burden or caused your burden and I want you to leave here with your load lightened so that joy and life and peace can come back into your soul. And number six, to forgive someone, it leaves it between them and Jesus. And it gets you out of the middle and it gets you out of the way. Say, Jesus, I forgive them. I now transfer them to your court. You deal with them however you see fit. And that's exactly what he does. And we read in Acts chapter eight, the second half of verse one, Stephen forgives. Do you get that? And Paul responds, and there rose that day a great persecution against the church. Did things immediately get better? No, they got worse. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. Devout men buried Stephen. Godly people held a funeral for him and made great lamentation over him. People loved him. People missed him. People were devastated. But Saul, there's Paul, was what? Ravaging the church. This didn't melt his heart. This didn't change his mind. This didn't break his will. This only made him feel stronger, more empowered. One dead Christian down, many more to go. and entering house after house. It's one thing when the Christians are meeting to come and oppose them, and now you're out knocking on doors. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Grandmas are getting arrested. Little girls are getting arrested. This looks in every way from the human perspective that God has failed, that Stephen is lost, and that the church is doomed. And Paul is feeling very vindicated, very self-righteous. Don't kid yourself. He's a devoutly religious man who believes he's on God's mission. I want you to know this about forgiveness. Forgiveness is willing to lose for a while. Forgiveness always demonstrates a patience. And then something happens, and this is the most important day in the life of the most important mere mortal in the history of Christianity. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, Christianity was originally called the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, arrest them. Imagine your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa. They're banging on the door of their house. Saul and the wolves are there to chain them up and take them back to Jerusalem to treat them like they did Stephen. Do me a favor and close your eyes. Everybody except for me, close your eyes. And let me just read this to you. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Keep your eyes closed. Imagine Saul, strong, powerful, driven, self-righteous, religious, committed, devoted followers who are absolutely committed to him. And one day he's blind. With your eyes closed, just imagine emotionally where he was in that moment. He doesn't know if he will ever see again. And what he's experiencing physically is a reflection of his soul spiritually. He is blind to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You can open your eyes. For three days, this strong man is made weak. This dangerous man is rendered powerless. I want you to take this truth and I want you to hold on to it like a life ring as if you were adrift in an open sea. Jesus always eventually gets involved. Jesus always eventually gets involved. Dear friend, Jesus always eventually gets involved. It may be in this life, you forgive them, leave it between them and Jesus, and he comes down and deals with them. It may be that they die and stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account and he determines heaven and hell, forgiven and unforgiven. But Jesus always eventually gets involved and he gets involved with Saul, with Paul. And he becomes converted to Christianity and God restores his sight physically and spiritually and he becomes a man who travels upwards of 20 miles a day on foot to proclaim from city to city and he heads headlong into mobs and crowds 
And there are other packs of wolves and other alphas who come against him who used to be just like him and they seek to destroy him. And everywhere he goes, he proclaims the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ because he was forgiven. And I know you've been studying 2 Corinthians. And I want to close with 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Many years later is a forgiven man who's a forgiving man. He plants a church in a city called Corinth, and it's a wild town with a crazy church and some unbelievable stories of demon possession and sexual sin and lawsuits and drunkenness. It is, it is a church that is in every way in need of a lot of God's grace. And I want to revisit a section that your pastor shared with you. There was a man in that church who was not like Stephen. Stephen was innocent, not perfect, but innocent. This other man, he's not innocent, he's guilty. He's done some things that are unacceptable in the sight of God, and God's people are fully aware of that. And the question is, what do we do with this person who is guilty of these things that should not have been done? And so Paul, being absent from them, now being like a spiritual father who planted the church, all of a sudden, the murderer of Christians has gone to the pastor of Christians. After killing Stephen, he becomes a man in a position like Stephen. It's amazing, isn't it? Stephen forgave Paul and prayed for him. You do not know what God might do if you would forgive them and pray for them. We do not know who they might become or what they might do. Stephen forgave him and prayed for him and that unleashed him. And so Paul, notice the change in his disposition, his temperament, his tone, his tactic. He writes this, turn to what? Forgive. And comfort, not just, I forgive you because I have to. <laughs> it's, hey, I know this is hard. I know this is shameful. I know you're embarrassed. I know what you've been doing is now publicly known and everybody has an opinion. And I forgive you and we forgive you and we're here to comfort you. Or he may be overwhelmed by what? Excessive sorrow. So I beg you, he's appealing to affirm your love for him. But he did wrong! And so did you. And God forgave you and God comforted you and God loved you and God sent you as an ambassador to forgive them and to comfort them and to love them. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and see whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. This is the opposite of taking an offense. Taking offense is where I don't forgive you and I go get some other people and now we don't forgive you. Okay? This is the opposite. I forgive you and I'm going to go get some other people and we're all going to forgive you. True or false? You love this when people do this for you. True. True or false? It's kind of hard to do it for others. True. You're like, Mark, I love that part of the sermon when you talked about my forgiveness. When you talked about forgiving them, I don't know, I've got to think about that a little more. That's a little more complicated for me. 
Forgiven people must be forgiving people. Comforted people must be comforting people. Loved people must be loving people. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I've been doing a lot of study on forgiveness, and oftentimes I've found in the New Testament when it talks about forgiveness and unforgiveness or bitterness or vengeance or wrath in the same orbit, it talks about the demonic, Satan and demons. And I was praying and asking the Lord Jesus, Lord, I, I, I see a connection here, but I don't fully understand it. I want to share with you something that I believe could be very helpful. Satan and demons, we really have an enemy and an adversary, and our war is not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits. And the greatest lie that the devil ever told is to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And Satan and demons have never been forgiven for anything. And Satan and demons will never forgive anyone for anything. And the heart of the demonic is unforgiveness. The heart of the demonic is unforgiveness. And what breaks demonic strongholds is forgiveness. And what Paul is saying here is this man, he's done wrong. We all know it. Now Satan, though, has a plan to get us all not to forgive him. And then for the demonic to be unleashed in our church and for death and destruction to ensue. And what he's saying is, don't fall prey to Satan's tactics and tricks. Don't give in to this demonic attempt to recruit you into the alliance with the enemy. Forgive him. And then Satan and demons will not have a victory. Instead, the Lord Jesus will have a great victory. Satan and demons, they want to torment you through unforgiveness. Satan and demons then want you as a tormented person to be tormenting others through your unforgiveness. God wants to release you by forgiving you. And he wants you to release yourself and others by forgiving them. This is the message of a man who has murdered a church leader. A few questions in closing. Have you been forgiven by Jesus Christ? Or are you like Saul, powerful, strong, moral, religious, self-righteous, in charge of your own life, but separated from Jesus, unyielded to Jesus? then this is the day when God wants you to turn from sin and trust in him. He wants this to be the most significant day of your life, the hinge in which your former way of life closes and your new way of life with Jesus opens through forgiveness. And Jesus right now is standing and he is cheering and he is welcoming and he is inviting. Number two, what has God forgiven you of? I find it helpful before we forgive others to first remind ourselves of what God has forgiven us for. Think of all the wrong you have done, all the thoughts you have said, all the words you have spoken, all the failures you are responsible for. 
For just a moment, let that guilt, let that condemnation, let that shame just, just oppress you for a moment. And then remember, you're forgiven. And the burden is lifted. And God loves you and he's here to comfort you. What have you been forgiven for? And my last question, before you leave today, who do you need to forgive? So that we can break those demonic strongholds and tormenting moments in your life. So that this beautiful, wonderful church would, would be filled with the grace of God and the love of God and the unity of the saints through the forgiveness of sin. That Satan wouldn't get a foothold that becomes a stronghold, that becomes a chokehold, that becomes a death sentence. Father, I pray for my friends, those who are present, those that we have the opportunity to speak to through technology. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the amazing life witness and testimony of Saul who became Paul. Lord Jesus, that he would become a messenger of forgiveness is a remarkable thing. I pray against the enemy of servants, their works and effects. I pray against those who are being tormented because of their bitterness and their vengeance and their wrath. I pray for those, Lord God, who are tormenting others out of their own torment. I thank you for his words that, that ultimately the power of the kingdom is unleashed and the power of the enemy is destroyed through the forgiveness of sins as we receive forgiveness from Jesus and extend it to others in Jesus' good name. Holy Spirit, would you help us now to live in that anointing and grace, to leave our burdens here, to give our enemies to you, and to walk freely as Stephen did with the face of an angel as the children of God in Jesus' good name. Amen.